Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Rosie Kay. Rosie is a British choreographer, best known for her shows Five Soldiers, MK Ultra, and choreographing the handover in the 2018 Commonwealth Games closing ceremony. In 2019, Rosie resigned from her dance company following an investigation after claims were made by her dancers regarding her views on gender and biological sex. In 2022, she launched the K2 Code Dance Company, where company members are asked to sign a commitment to freedom of expression, a charter of creation, affirming that the workplace will be a safe space where we will be free to express our thoughts and feelings without fear of being silenced, shut down, or canceled. In this episode, we discuss her background as a dancer and choreographer, the discourse around representation and marginalized groups in the arts, gender ideology and the importance of biological sex, the role of art in human connection, fair in the arts, and Rosie's plans for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Rosie Kay. Rosie Kay, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Oh, it's great to be here. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. And thank you for uh, joining us at such a late hour across the pond. <laughs> Time zones are a thing. Yeah. It's not the latest <laughs> fair I've, event I've ever done. I think I've done one at 1 a.m. before, so it's not too bad. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I apologize for our imprudence. Um, so, you know, you and I have met before. We know each other. I'm familiar with your story. Melissa's familiar with your story. But I think many of our listeners aren't. And uh, I know you've told it a bunch of times, but I think it's probably a good idea to start with you giving us a little bit about your background and then telling us why why we're here today. Uh, so I'm a dancer and choreographer. Um, I danced from when I was very little. Never quite thought it could actually be a career, but luckily enough, got into dance school discovered contemporary dance. And I think what drew me particularly to contemporary dance was the fact that it could encompass so many different art forms. Uh, it has all these different technical levels to it, um, but it also, the choreographers I really admired and looked up to also had a social political element to their work. They were very strong women. The work said something, and it said something about the times we, we are living in. So at first I was a, I was a dancer uh, in Poland, which I think also shaped my perspective somewhat living in a post-communist country in the 90s. And I lived in Berlin, France, and some time in the US as well, before almost going down the wrong, wrong track living in France and uh, decided to come back to the UK and commit to being my dream, which was to be a choreographer, which is to make my own work. So I kind of worked out the funding system and I started from very small doing solo duet works, building up a company and over 17 years making work that always had quite a sort of strong element to the work. Like I, I trained with an infantry battalion to make a work about the embodied experience of soldiers. I made a work about religion. I made a work about politics, which encompassed conspiracy theory and the symbolism within pop videos. So I was kind of quite renowned for making serious, uh, dynamic, physical work, but work with a meaning. And I very much sort of had the perspective that um, I was, I'm, I'm a female artist, but, but I wanted to be seen as a choreographer in my own right. Um, and being a woman was part of that. It always has a female perspective, but it wasn't like the, the front and centre. Although now I think that that actually is a key, has been a key part of my work for, for 25 years. So we were actually on tour in the US when COVID struck. Uh, we just got back in time before the travel bans came in. And I set to back in, you know, in the UK in lockdown, working on two, two shows. I was working on a solo that was my first ever autobiographical show, which was very much about my life, um, my body, what my body has done, the successes it's achieved through my art form, but also some of the real personal costs, um, including like the 
near death of myself and my child in childbirth and, you know, really sort of powerful stuff. And then I was also working on a, um, a big scale production of, uh, of Romeo and Juliet based in Birmingham, which is my adopted home city. And it's a, it's a big, very multicultural city. It has some tensions. It's had a few riots, but it's also a really friendly, completely amazing city as well. Mm. So, so the solo went out. Um, it, it was quite strongly worded in the solo, um, but I got big, you know, fantastic reviews. And I suppose in some ways I thought that had kind of um, exposed the fact that I think being a woman is, is more than just an idea. It's, it's a material, physical reality. And that was kind of really congratulated in all the big sort of liberal left papers like The Guardian and The Observer. And then I went into making uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is where the sort of the story <laughs> starts with where it all started to go uh, right. a bit strange. And this is for your, your company that you started, right? So the the kind of understanding behind that, uh, I, I had it. I was a director of my own company for seventeen years, and then in order to become a charity under English law, I needed to step down. And I decided um, now, mistakenly, to become an employee of my own company. So that meant for the first time, I had a salary, a pension, holiday, those kind of protections. But it also meant that I stepped down from um, taking the slack. I suppose, like taking the you know if. if up until then, if any of the works had been controversial, I was the director, I was the boss, I took it. When I stepped down, I didn't realise that actually then the board started to have that power rather than me. So to all mm-hmm. sets and purposes, it was, it was Rosie Kedan's company. All the work, all the earnings came through me and my work. But in actual fact, legally, I was no longer the actual director of, of this company. So I'd been working uh, for five years uh, researching this this production. I'd worked with amazing school that used Shakespeare uh, right across its curriculum. This is probably a majority uh, non-white Muslim school. I mean, they knew Shakespeare better than me, and I was testing out all the ideas physically with them. I was working with West Midlands Police really to gain access to children that were caught up in gang culture and and how that affected them and their and their families. Um, I was looking at it on a political strategic level, like where the money suddenly comes in and when the money evaporates and all the kind of arts and after school environments that, that had just disappeared over the past 10 years in Birmingham. And so I had like stories and deep research, every little aspect of this work I'd researched and then storyboarded and then auditioned for a, a what I wanted was a very young cast because it's Romeo and Juliet. So they were quite inexperienced. Some of them hadn't even had their graduation shows because of COVID. And I wanted to give young people a chance, a chance to be on the really big stage, to work at that level and work through COVID. So we were having to work through very strange conditions. Um, we're making a Romeo and Juliet, so there's a love duet right in the centre of it. Um, but we could only touch for 10 minutes of every hour and only three hours a day. So, you know, you only get going after... 30 minutes to an hour of, of, of really getting the good material, but I only had 30 minutes a day. So it was, it was tough conditions. Mm. We couldn't socialize. We couldn't eat lunch together. We couldn't sit together. So it was a, it was an alienating atmosphere. Mm. And I started to notice that there were, there were tensions I'm used to. I mean, I love my job. I love my workplace. I love telling all my stories, but something was odd in the atmosphere. And I felt that I, I was feeling like maybe I was getting paranoid, but that, um, there was an uneasy atmosphere at times. Uh, so I invited them to my house, the dancers, these are nine dancers, to my home that I share with my husband and my quite young child. Um, and I prepared all these different meals, um, sort of vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free. It was a nice uh, warm evening. We, you know, we're, we're dancers. Uh, and right. we, we sat outside and we had lots of food and then Everybody brought lots of alcohol and then they drank my alcohol and, you know, it was getting <laughs> <laughs> quite late, really late into the night. My husband tried uh. to chuck everyone out at about 1.30, but people were kind of really into it and we were talking, we were talking about everything and it was quite a fun, fun atmosphere. But then they asked me what my next work was and I kind of like a bit over elaborately announced that I was making uh, adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel Orlando, which is a fantastically witty, funny, brilliant tour de force by Virginia Woolf. And it romps through 400 years of British history. 
the hero halfway through becomes a heroine. So they have a, they have a male body and then they have a female body. And I was just oh. in the, about to put out an audition notice and the dancers kind of like just sort of exclaimed that, that this had to be played by a trans person. And I really was, I mean, well aware of what's going on um, with the kind of gender ideology versus sort of gender critical feminists. Um, and really, I, 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 I thought it just has to be somebody absolutely outstanding because they've got to encompass a full length show. They've got to be the star. There's a lot of other demands than just male and female, but that would be, you know, I, I wasn't sure how that was going to be. So that's when the, it, it turned into quite a heated debate about the difference between sex and gender. And mm. I was the only, well, actually I wasn't the only one. There was, a, there was another dancer that was on my, in my position, which is that um, I feel that sex is real and is immutable and not in all circumstances. I don't mind, you can live however you please, but in certain circumstances where women are particularly vulnerable, sex is really important. And when we override and we erase both the meaning of the word and the meaning of sex in law, particularly, that does put women in danger. I also feel that some of the gender affirming care, as it's called, uh, rather euphemistically, um, I, I feel that that's um, quite a threat to children that could grow up just to be gender nonconforming or gay. And having a child myself and having given birth to that child, um, you know, as I said earlier, like it was quite traumatic. You know, you, you have a very strong sense of, of of what sex means and what bodies mean, and that bodies are my job. But this mm. didn't go down well at all, and I kept trying to sort of like dig my way out of it. But I seemed to sort of it seemed to get worse, and they got more entrenched. And when I returned to work the next on the Monday, I could feel a wall of hostility, and that's kind of a choreographer's worst nightmare because you're trying to conjure things from your imagination out of nothing onto an empty stage that means something. And you need to have these people with you. So I asked my board, my chair to step in. And quite quickly, I realized that actually they all already had made their mind up as to who was at fault, which seemed to be me. And that spiraled me into quite a, quite a sense of shock. And I hoped that just due diligence and due process would be taken. And we'd be able to say, there are different opposing views. These are legally protected. It was in the privacy of Rosie's own home. It was out of work time. Work with Rosie, then you can't work with Rosie. You know, I just hoped that the grown-ups would, would, would step in. But that didn't happen. And um, I went through four and a half months of, well, one investigation of which I was exonerated. And then one of the dancers who'd already left the company appealed. And I went through a second investigation by which point I'd lost trust. Uh, there were all sorts of, um, I can, can I say, sort of dodgy practices going on and a lot of mm. money of my charity being spent to investigate me. And I didn't feel it was impartial or fair in any way. And so I resigned citing constructive dismissal um, and discrimination. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, were, what were these investigations about like just the the idea of we're going to launch an investigation into this argument that you had outside of the theater in your house with your dancers after much alcohol and hanging out in the wee hours of the night what what investigation like what is being investigated exactly yeah and i i kept sort of i mean it was really hard because the first investigation i wasn't even really told what the allegations were against me but i guessed you know because it was sort of things like it was it, you know you were inappropriate and I was like can I dig a little bit deeper you know I what I think it is is because I was disagreeing about something that's a fundamental disagreement ideologically and they kept saying no no it's not that but it really was that mm. and I think the board uh, some of them were ill-equipped to handle the arguments but I think actually some of them also had been through some kind of training and thought that they knew what the right view was with disregard to the actual law, because we have the we have something called the Equality Act um, in this country, and sex and belief in sex is is a protected characteristic. So they they were they were, I could say charitably they were ill informed. I mean, I could say they were they were biased. Um, if I were if I were more firm, <laughs> Rosie, I, I recall I think it was Eddie Redmayne. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Who played um, 
a trans woman in a film called The Danish Girl, where um, it was about an artist, one of the first people in history, at least known to, to undergo gender reassignment surgery. And he came out saying later on, I mean, he, it was a very acclaimed performance. I thought he did so wonderfully. And later on, he came out and actually apologized. He said it was actually a mistake to play a trans character that he went in with the best intentions, but that he, you know, he wouldn't have taken the role now. I, you know, this is the same guy who played the disabled scientist, Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he won an Oscar for it in the theory of everything. Um, I don't think, do you think it, what are your opinions of, 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 you know, these artists, very established artists who are mainstream actors, um, who are kind of conforming to, to something? I mean, do, do you think this actually hurts the overall art scene? Well, that, that's, that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking at the moment in terms of like um, the basis of art needs to have some kind of foundation into um one can call it truth or or i think in the workspace one would call it honesty so you come into the workspace um knowing already who you are what you are and then from there from that base level that we're all agreed from there we go into an imaginary world and we try and create fantasies and stories and I think that we really are looking at the very root basic principles of what the arts are there to do and what, what they can say to us, how, how we can step into other people's shoes, other people's bodies, other people's minds, and it will give us a huge perspective that we would never have if we were only ever using our small lived experience. I think that's one of the, the wonders and fantasies of where the arts can take us, is, is, is to places beyond our norm. So I really worry about this kind of shutting down from the very premise, uh, th- th- this idea that we, we start from a bedrock and, and then we explore a world from there. It, it sort of really dismantles any sense of, you know, if we're all performing ourselves all the time, then what then does performance become itself? It, it feels mm-hmm. um, un- untrue to me. It feels, and, and it's really difficult to argue some of this stuff because so much of one's work as an artist is is in the imaginary realm. But, you know, where would we be without Dostoevsky? Where would we be? We, we wouldn't even have that um, that imagination that opens up to some of those. I mean, he, he created modern psychology, or the psychology of, 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 of criminology. I mean, where would we be without him making those jumps in his imagination? He didn't have to do it himself to imagine it. Mm. So I think there's a... There, there is a threat on the arts that's very existential. Yeah, I think Eddie Redmayne also was criticized for playing Stephen Hawking. People, you know, a smaller subset, I think, and it wasn't as intense because I think it was a little earlier on. But, but yeah, people were saying that somebody with that particular disability should have been the person to play it. Doesn't make any sense because the movie portrays the, the progression. That you'd, you'd need a, you'd need different exactly. actors, I guess. But it brings up, I think, you know, to to be fair to where people are coming from, I think, is the argument that I hear all the time is that there are so few opportunities for these particular groups of people yeah. in the arts. And so when, when, there, when a part comes that is basically tailor-made for them, they're a shoe-in for it, and even those aren't given to them, then they have nothing. That that's the argument, and and I and I I I would you know I was about to say that argument myself you know that I I would do, I would agree with that um, mm-hmm. I think there was also a, there was a, a piece recently in the UK where where they 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 made absolutely the biggest efforts to to cast the role I think it was Priscilla Queen of the Desert uh, a, a trans person in a in a trans role but the demands of that actual job that need you to sing act and dance. You know, they spent months and, and they cast the best person they thought for the job. And I suppose I'm coming at it from that perspective that it's 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 very demanding certain roles, particularly, you know, technically in a in a dance production, that absolutely are completely open to who that role could be played by. But I wouldn't want to be prescriptive right from the start. And it also depends on on the perspective of particularly Virginia Woolf, 
I was consulting with an LGBT group and with several trans uh, people that work in the arts. And, you know, we were really discussing on deep level and actually sort of looking at Virginia Woolf's sort of the way, why is she doing that? What's she telling us? And what's my interpretation as a choreographer? Or Virginia Woolf is, or is making some observations about Orlando as a man and then how differently Orlando as a woman is treated, although Orlando stays the same. So there was sort of some complicated issues about what, what are we judging this male and femaleness on? Is it performance or, or what's happening inside? You know, it wasn't, wasn't saying it was going to be an easy show to make, but I thought it was asking really interesting questions. And I didn't want to be prescriptive before even auditioning. That, that should be the purpose of art. You know, it's asking these kinds of questions uh, in society. And, you know, I, I just think about kind of the net effect of all of this, because you know, in a way, these um, dancers of your, in, in your troupe um, who really care about this issue, it's clear they're very passionate about it. They, um, you know, really care about the marginalized and, and, and trans people and they want them to be better represented. But in a way, their actions have canceled you and so have canceled a production that would have explored these questions that, that could have had a trans dancer. Who knows, right? It's, it's, um, and, and the world then becomes deprived of, of, of this production that, that you, you were planning. I mean, obviously now we can talk about what your plans are now, you know, <laughs> that, since you've left the, the, the dance company, but, um, it, it, I don't think they think about the, the consequences. It is in a way just all about exacting revenge, um, on wrong think you, you, you ventured into a realm where you know, you started uh, asking questions or having opinions that were just not, um, not tolerated in society. Um, and you can see that the same thing has been happening to folks like uh, JK Rowling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's no, it, it, yeah. yeah. It, no, I, I agree. And, and, and what was so wonderful was I felt like Virginia Woolf gave us a little hint through, and I've got to say, actually, no, nobody had read the book. So nobody knew what I, what I was talking about. And I felt there's so much wit and humor in in everything she's doing in that book. And she's playing with style and playing with form. And she's there's, there's this really mm. untrustworthy narrator and she's sort of pulling herself down as a writer while also showing off her amazing skills. And it's a love letter to her, her lover, Vita Sackville West. And I've read all their letters and it really is dedicated to, to Vita. It was, it, it's such a gorgeous, beautiful book about sex, sexuality, gender, stereotypes, it's, it, it offers a, a plate for that. And yeah, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel really sad that, you know, not, not a, somehow, by, that's what I was going to say, was that I agree that they really do believe in their opinions and I, I respect that, that's fine. But it, it seems that no matter what you say with your own evidence of your own life, you, you're going to get shouted that you're a turf if you know that term it's a sort mm. of term for, for 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 a woman that's saying but being a woman is a bit more you know and and and, and it didn't matter how much I sort of like ex, you know, expunged my sort of like l stories that didn't count and so that, that you wouldn't mind if they were passionate in one way but listened similarly it, it, it's very much a one-way street yeah. as as with JK Rowling it's a similar I think block as you know just the fact that the fact that the reason that you you ended up in the conversation you did is because you had this great idea for this really interesting piece based on a book that deals with these issues in really complicated and nuanced and interesting ways and now we don't get to see it because the conversation got shut down you know the conversation yeah. of the of the work itself got shut down because we couldn't have an actual conversation about ideas without it turning into this huge issue. And I think, I think a lot of it is coming from, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that a lot of what moved you about dance is that you felt all, all this social commentary and you felt that there was, there was some, you know, speaking to society, speaking to the political realities of womanhood or just being in society. And so, so it's not even that you're opposed to the idea of art that has a political message or art that ha that makes definitive statements about the nature of the world, the nature of society and, 
and take sides. It's not even that you're opposed to that because that's, that's what got you into it in the first place. It seems to me that where, where you part ways with certain other people is that the art not only must have that valence to it, it must do those things. It must make those statements, but it must make specific statements. It can't make just any statement. It has to make <laughs> the statement. Mm, mm. And and like I said earlier, I was no stranger to a little bit of controversy. Um, although I have made um, really beautiful abstract dances about music and and love and joy, you know. Um, although even that, I think, becomes political nowadays. When I was doing Five Soldiers, it was really interesting because, of course, there was you'd expect massive resistance from an all male infantry battalion to to a woman coming in and. You know, and, and I just had to win my way through that and and with some sort of grit and determination and impress them enough that, that I got I got invited in to actually how they really behave rather than how they were behaving as to, to a woman being in this environment. Um and you know, and then the higher ranks thought that this was a bit controversial and there was even a point where they tried to stop me uh premiering the show in London, the, the, the Ministry of Defence phoned us up and said, oh, you can't do this work because there was an election at the time. And we, we said, this is way back in 2010. And I said, yes, yes, we, we can do this work. It's a work of art. But then it also got a backlash from the sort of more left uh, liberal arts quarter, because simply by being someone looking at the army, bearing in mind, we'd had that prolonged war in Iraq and we were now uh, really seriously in Afghanistan and the casualties and the amputations, like the, the mm. complex trauma injuries were, were, were huge. And because of my research, I'd seen it, but they were not being released into the public domain yet. People were saying, oh, you're right wing simply by looking at the military. And so I, I, I was like, well, we'll just see the work because actually it, it's a really strong, powerful work that examines uh, all sorts of taboos within the military, but also shows some of those sides. You, you, you wonder why people um, love love being in the military, and they do. You know, they feel like a family with it. And I wanted to show some of those qualities as well. And some of it's really funny, you know. And that's a mm. show that's been touring for twelve years since. It, it it's it's a tricky line. I, I'm definitely someone. I don't go looking for trouble, but I certainly, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to be an artist, if I'm going to make, you know these kind of sacrifices that one makes to, to, to do this, then I want to try and capture our times and capture the taboos that we're not allowed to talk about. And that was written into my charity that Rosie Kay looks at, at taboo and controversial subject matter. You know, I'd written that in and I'm, I'm used to it and I, and I like talking about it. And I wouldn't hear those soldiers' stories unless I went down the pub with them. I wouldn't understand things about conspiracy theory had I not gone down the rabbit hole of looking at some deep conspiracy theories to kind of pull back and go, well, at the end of the day, they all seem pretty anti-Semitic. You know, I, I, it, it, there's, 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 there's places you have to go to then pull back to go, well, I want to look at quite a lot of these things. Like what's the cultural phenomenon of our time? And, and, and this is one of these cultural phenomenon. I just didn't realise quite how close to the flame I was flying. Hmm. <laughs> Rosie, Rosie you, wrote a, you wrote a really amazing piece for Unheard. The title was My Body Will Never Be Erased. And in it, you discuss some of your, what happened, but also some of your views on this uh, gender ideology, biological denialism, and the slow erasure of even the concept of woman. We already see the erasure of wor the word womanhood in some places, um, some high places in activism, for example. But we're also, it's, it's now more than just words. It's, it's conceptual. And um, you have this really um, beautiful paragraph at the end, towards the end, where you talk about the oppression of women is based entirely on our biology and our reproductive rights and vulnerabilities, and that we embody our oppression and our strength. This line really gets me. You say, I feel this powerfully in my own body, a dancer's body, but also a woman's body, a body that has been raped, assault, assaulted, attacked, strangled, knocked out and abused. My body has been in deep pain, physical and mental. My body has been a victim. It, it, this is, it's such a beautiful paragraph. And I, 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 I'd love, could you give us a little bit more insight on this piece that you wrote? Like, why do you think this? <laughs> 
Well, I think it came from um, making this autobiographical solo um, called Adult Female Dancer, which is a piece of, it's a half hour piece of dance. Um, and, and it was really right through COVID on my own in a small cold church hall that they let me use for a few hours a day. I worked through some of the stories of my life. I, I wrote about them and then I recorded them and then I would dance about them. And it was really interesting because um, there were things that I hadn't admitted to myself um, around like uh, violent abuse of an ex-partner. There were things from my past that I just sort of shut down and using COVID and this chance not just to write and speak about it, but actually to dance about it changed something in me. Um, and I was quite, um, I grew up with a, a mother who was a radical feminist. And I remember <laughs> she had a, an office a bit like mine, full of books. And I remember stealing her Jermaine Greer and then her Andrea Dawkin. And Andrea Dawkin was, was seen as quite sort of full on, um, even in the 80s and 90s. And so I returned to that kind of second wave feminism and was really hearing what they were saying because I, I'd benefited from second wave feminism, but I certainly probably behaved like a liberal feminist in the 90s. You know, I could wear high heels and go clubbing and wear what I want and, you know, and, and have a very sort of liberal life. And then actually, I think there's something that happens as you get older as a woman and you look back and you start to realise so many of these, both the highs and some of the lows, I wasn't in that much control and power of getting my hypnoids in a bar and managing to skate, getting abducted in a taxi and talking my way out of it. You know, like as a, as a young woman, I learned a bit the, the gift of the gap. Like if you, can, if you can charm them and make them laugh, you can humanize yourself and you can escape, but you don't escape. There are, there are still things that you wow. do not escape from. And I think once you reach, you know, probably a period of more security in my life, a secure marriage, a child, a home, it gave me the chance to look at those things and to really and reread Greer and walk in and go, my goodness, they were they were they were right about certain things. And I suppose, you know, understanding like the roots of feminism, the fight that my grandmothers and great grandmothers went through to 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 achieve the vote you know, to, to learn to drive, to have their own money, to have their own bank account. My mum couldn't have her own bank account. I remember that. The, these, are, these are recently fought for and won rights. And I didn't realise how fragile they are. And like you say, once you erase even the concept of sex in law, and it becomes about something else, about perception of femininity or masculinity, rather than actually our, our bodies, you really are missing out the entire history of feminist, the feminist movement there, because there is this imbalance um, of, 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 of we are the people that create and, and, and bear the, the, the next generation of little humans. You know, we, we, we are. And I, I was quite shocked through pregnancy, how wonderful it was and how miraculous it was, but how, um, how difficult it was as well and, and, and could be very dehumanising at time. You were just a, a, a birthing body, as they say. And I don't like that. I don't like that. It takes away the, the sacred and the profound. It, it sounds like it's, it's devaluing your lived experience. Well, it's funny because I, I, <laughs> I trained in um, anthropology. I had a year in the School of Anthropology at the University of Oxford and these were, this is not that long ago, it's 2013, and, and I, I co-wrote a, a big study, a paper, looking at young women with eating disorders and disordered eating. And I did a whole dance training program and trained them in dance and in choreography. And then they made solos about their disordered eating experience. And I would use the term lived experience without any irony. And I really understood <laughs> it. <laughs> I'd read my yeah. Merle Ponty and my... my anthropology I understood the terminology I thought it was really important way forward to be able to talk about lived experience in an academic way and use the arts to illustrate you know it with with things like eating disorders they become very linear narratives very medicalized mm. but then when you dance it you can be past present and future all within one moment and there's something very beautiful about these solos they were absolutely stunning solos um, yeah. But then to use them as an academic tool was was fascinating. So I've always been interested in what, what the body and the can say about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the the George Carlin in me wants to say 
All experience is lived experience. <laughs> there's, no de- there's no dead experience, so it's it's a redundant term. But but I think that, I think it's just interesting to me that you know we've had these conversations on the podcast before um, with a few people. You know, Dr. Erica Anderson. I spoke to her, and I mentioned I mentioned you know to her when we were talking about youth transition and that sort of stuff. And you know, she's a she's very well, well-versed in that particular topic. You know, she is a trans woman herself. She is a psychologist. She knows what she's talking about in that sense, um, or at least she's deeply invested in it. And really, you know, it's just struck me talking to her, and I made this point to her, that it seems to me that the same compassion that one has for a gender dysphoric child or, or a, you know, a youth who's going through this stuff and wants to transition, that same compassion that makes you want to do something for them and make them so that they feel like their whole selves would also propel you to be extremely careful not to be too rash, right? And in, and in this case, it seems to me that the same compassion that we have for trans people, for people who are marginalized, people who don't get to speak, who don't get to be heard, is also would also come to play when we are silencing people in favor of those other people. The competing rights and the competing compassions here, that's an interesting tension that I think is so hard for us to talk about. I wonder if you think, what do you think about that? Um, I'm not sure what, is, is, there, is there a question in that really? Yeah, like, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird, I guess it's a weird concept, but the idea is, is, you know, in order to be compassionate to this particular group that I'm focused on, I am going to withhold compassion to this other group. I am going to, I'm going to now, you know, cut off my compassion and start mistreating this other group in favor of the group that I'm worried about. And it seems to me that that, that that's backwards, you know, and maybe there's a different way to go about this stuff. Well, I suppose if you compare um, gender dysphoria to eating disorders of which they're not the same, but there are some similarities in um, particular around social contagion and I mean with eating disorders it, it's it is the most deadly of the mental health conditions um and has lifelong health implications yeah. you know I, I found some of the treatment um really like hard to to hear you know things like forced eating and you know and things like that it was it was, it was really painful but you know these these particularly young women, but not strictly young women, also some young men, you know, their, their lives are, are in danger. And there's a whole load of things that happen to you neurologically when, when you're starving that, 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 that push you mm-hmm. further and further. Mm-hmm. I suppose the thing with gender dysphoria is, is there is the evidence that around 80, I think 80 to 90% of gender non-conforming children will either just grow up to be gender non-conforming or, or gay or lesbian. And this whole idea about giving them a, a drug like Lupron, which is a sterilization drug used for um, sex offenders in prisons. Yeah, it, it, it has, it, we're seeing, and this is coming out in Finland, in Sweden, in the UK, in France, that this has long-term, not just uh, sterilization issues for both men and young men and young women. It also has bone development issues and it actually has brain development issues. And so we really are using like experimental, they admit, I think, I think some of the Wipath surgeons have admitted that this is an experimental phase of, 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 of young people or child sort of treatment of, of, of mental health condition, although it's debatable whether it's mental health condition mm-hmm. in current terminology. And, and the problem for me is, is that's, that's irreversible. That's irreversible right. long-term damage. And, and so for me, you know, the watchful waiting, the talking therapies, all those other therapies that we could help. You know, I understand what it's like to, to live in a body that, that I constantly am working at and changing and never happy with. It could be thinner, could be stronger, could be longer, could be leaner. Um, there are days I can't bear myself, my physicality. You know, I have to, as a young dancer, I have to look at myself in a mirror and leotard and tights for eight hours a day. It's absolutely horrific. You know? but, <laughs> but actually, like, through the work I do, through the dance, particularly like with the eating disorders group, actually what's so wonderful is when you use your, when you ask your body other things of itself, rather than just its superficial level of either what it looks like or how you feel about it at that time. If you ask it nice, complex questions about memory, about um, physics, concepts of physics, of weight, of, of density, 
actually your body's, it's like a child. It's delighted to be asked. You know, ask your knees or your feet to dance and they will tell you something. Um, mm. and, 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 and that's the way that you really then do start to enjoy and have pleasure with your body and, and, and live in it and then connect with others. Because the best way of having a good mental health life is, is to really engage with other people genuinely. Mm. I mean, I, I find that like I can forget my troubles if I'm really, really engaged with somebody else or doing something together. And so that's the way I think we should be looking at, you know, this is a deep malaise, I think, of our time. And it's telling something about the, the nihilism that is coming across through our young people for, for a multitude of reasons. But it's ended up all focused on themselves and their bodies. And I think that's terrible. I think that's terrible. Mm. I, I would love mm. these young people to be happy with the bodies that, the, that they have. Rosie, that description made me so jealous of what dance is really like. Because I, for, for me, I feel like it's, it's this little homunculus in my brain controlling my body. It's not the other way around. And I have no idea what it's like. I have two left feet, can't dance. So I, I can only imagine what that must feel like. Then. And that was a very uh, beautiful description. Mm. Well, to, so kind of to piggyback on Angel's point, I think, you know, one of the reasons why there is this lack of compassion is, is because it is framed in terms of violence and causing harm. Uh, I don't know if in the, you know, in that heated debate at your house that night, Rosie, did did these kinds of words come up? You know, uh, your 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 ideology is is actively harming the safety of trans individuals, and so when you frame something like that, it's very easy to justify completely steamrolling over people who are promoting that, right? And so they they see you as an agent of of danger. It's couched in those terms. It's, it's a little histrionic, but, but it's often couched in, in terms like that, that implies that some sort of physical safety is, is harmed. So that's where I think that's coming from. The, the reason why they, they are not compassionate in, in their argument against, uh, you know, the, the people who, like the feminists who are questioning well, what, what is this really doing for women's rights? And what is it saying? What are the consequences? We haven't thought about it. I mean, and again, you know, so much of this conversation is, is really just, I'm hearing a lot of uh, women just like yourself asking questions. Let's explore mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. and, and there is no room at all to go there. And it is because your existence, the, the fact that you are questioning this leads to their, you know, their physical harm. Yeah, and, and and I'm sort of sad that that um, I, I I I can't really work out where where that is coming from. That's sort of yeah. I, I think that's been quite a surprise and shock to those of us of the generation that grew up in the '90s and have seen such um, advances in women's uh, position in society and in the liberalisation of laws around uh, homosexuality. You know, I, I think we were on a really good path. That's not to say that there weren't still areas where there would be misogyny or homophobia. I think the whole, the whole terminology of, of, of believing in something that I think the, the vast majority of most populations understand it's hardwired built into us as children very tiny chilled babies to recognize the difference between male and female to sort of be told that that in itself that that is an innate trait that we have to be able to tell the sex of people possibly for our own safety possibly you know i, I you know it's it's sex is older you know than than humans are you know it's what is it about a billion years old or something it, you know, it, for that then to be classed as a phobia, I, I think is is actually a technique to shut down any questioning, yep. and, I, and I'm not sure what the motivations are for that. I, and I and I and I'm and I'm sad because I I I, I can trust young people, and and I'm I'm sad that they feel so so violently passionate about something that 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 could be should be should be discussed. But but my my wrath and my 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 anger is not towards the young young people 
uh, well, not 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 much. <laughs> um, I think more that <laughs> more more that the that the board and the adults and the people because I, I I like mm. governance and I like um, understanding how the law works um, and I take that responsibility very seriously. Even for an arts company or a charity, you've got to know your governance law. You've got to follow procedures properly. You've got to treat people with dignity, no matter how awful the situation is. You should be innocent until proven guilty, even yes. on an employment issue. And so that was that, that, that's that next level. That's the level past the kind of ideological level where we're talking about sort of governance, due diligence, and 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 that, and also just defence, defence of really yeah. key aspects of our civilization. Again, that's not to say that everything is fantastic. But there are certain elements around tolerance and debate that I, I freedom right. of speech, freedom of thought that are integral. And, you know, I, I come from a family that my, my grandfather was a Polish refugee and much of my family was exterminated and some survived uh, through the concentration camps. This is stuff we talked about at the dinner table was freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that's, you know, it's, it's built into my bones for sure. Yeah. You know, there's an irony that is hitting me right in the face as we're having this conversation, because we're talking about the inability to communicate with each other, the inability to connect to oneself and to connect with one another, and how much of a problem that is, how corrosive it is to our psyche and to our society, our civilization. And the the answer to this is art. Art, (laughs) the whole point of art dance, music, you know, comedy, every, all the whole point of it is this human connection. And as a way of dealing with the, you know, the tension of just being, being alive, of being a human being, you know, you mentioned yourself, uh, you know, your, your, your solo dance show was you processing trauma in, and turning it into something beautiful. You know, there's this wonderful metaphor that I, I, I talk about it all the time. I heard it somewhere. Where, you know, if you look at, for example, a violin, it's, it's wood and it's metal and it's been sawed off and chopped up and glued together and mashed together. And then these, these steel wires have been stretched across the neck of it and tightened to the point where they're so tense that if you hit it, a note comes up. And there's all this tension in a violin just sitting there. You know, it's this inert tension. And and what you have to do to get something out of it is strike it. You have to take a bow and you have to strike it. You have to create friction for there to be beautiful music. And, you know, you mentioned also that you like exploring these, these difficult, complicated topics. And art is such a beautiful forum for those things. And I, I feel like we've lost that. And, and we're just, we're dealing with, we, we, we've put ourselves in this cycle where we've lost it and we've, we see that we've lost it and we're suffering with the loss and we can't seem to understand that the way out of it is communicating with each other. And art is just such a beautiful way to do that. It, it makes me think a little bit like, um, you know, going into the world of war when we, when we really were at war and the soldiers I trained with were in pre-deployment training for Afghanistan. And then quite a lot of them came back with very serious injuries and there was something about five soldiers that I needed to show both the brutality, but also talking with soldiers. One of the things that really struck me was, you know, these are young people. They're very far away from home. Um, they're in really kind of like strange environments that are so completely alien to growing up in a sort of Midlands town or something. And they, so many of them talked about the beauty of Afghanistan, found it the most beautiful country, beautiful sunsets and that this kind of proximity to life and death with the beauty, you know, will we'll live with them f- forever. And there was something I really wanted to show in Five Soldiers about this kind of poetry and beauty right. while also in, in extreme sort of difficulty or discomfort or, or fear, actually. And then the other thing I was thinking about was, was, was you, you sort of like, yes, I, I totally agree that the arts should be the answer, but there's also the vice versa in that, the artists are also the most vulnerable because we are those people that put ourselves out on a limb regularly. Right. In fact, going back to Virginia Woolf, she says, you know, freedom is something that one must practice daily. It's not automatic, yeah? 
Yeah. And and that's what we're seeing a lot of is actually the automatic reaction is just to shut up and get stick get your head down. Don't mm. rock the boat and 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 hope that you'll be all right and survive. There's some of us who have trained in the art of freedom, you know, all of my adult life. And so it's so ingrained in me that 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 we're actually make ourselves incredibly vulnerable uh, because yeah. we'll be the first to sort of be cut down. And in fact, they use that as a measure. It's normally been in third world countries or, uh, you know, or developing countries. The secret services or the, the, uh, will, will use artists as an indication of how healthy a society is. And if they start to see artists, first of all, cancelled or deplatformed, then they start to get hassled by the police and arrested. Then they get imprisoned and then sadly they get executed. This is the first sign that a society is going towards authoritarianism. And that is our, our Western uh, secret services use it as a monitoring tool. It's, it's one of these indicators. Wow. And so that's a good one. We're just not used to feeling this in the West, but it's a very normal thing in other countries. And if you know your art history, you know the history of the cancellation of artists and what it means to society. Mm-hmm. You know this. You know this. Mm. I don't think the young people realize quite danger of what we're playing with here. It is not a coincidence that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard and in Iran, and sorry, it's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, mm. and the Taliban don't allow dancing on the streets, and and the the pro, when women there protest and they film themselves removing their mandatory headscarves, dancing in the street. That is so symbolic, right? Because we take that for granted here. And what's interesting about the kind of censorship that's, that you said is, is a weather vane for this path towards authoritarianism is that in, in other parts of the world, it is coming from top down, right? In China, they, they, they censor what kind of art you can produce, what kind of movies you can produce, the plot lines yeah. even. But in the West, this is coming from it's not even just bottom up, it's inside out, it's well, outside in, it's around us. Mm. And that is a weird place to be because we do not, we're not institutionally set up for, for censorship, but we end up in the same place. Mm. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. It's bizarre. Yes. And, and, and it's sort of like, it sort of shows up the inherent weakness, doesn't it? Of, 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 of Western democracies and, and tolerant societies. And because it's like everything just sort of hearing you guys talk in my background, you know, it's sort of, it's 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 not far away from where we thought we were we certainly want more representation we certainly want a fair world and and it's sort of like that has somehow just become a little bit topsy-turvy and and I think that might be why it took us a while to figure out what was going on actually still still it still does (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that, that leads me to mention Fair in the Arts, which is a, an initiative that we have, and you're a fellow, I'm also a fellow. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do, is, is remind people how important art is and how powerful it can be and what, how terrible it is when we lose it. You know, the, the examples that Melissa just mentioned. I mean, the fact that dancing in the street is, is a revolutionary act that, that does signal, as you said, uh, something has gone horribly wrong, uh, and 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 I think like like it, it's just it's just awful to because I worked in, in in Eastern Europe and 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 felt the atmosphere there and not just in the workplace the studio but even in you know restaurants and bars the first sort of bars that were opening and you know my friends would say Rosie you talk too openly and too loudly and you know I I, <laughs> I, I, I you know I, I experienced that in my early twenties yeah. Um, Oh, I can't remember what I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> so just, uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that, that fear kills. I remember fear kills creativity, having uh, to second guess yourself to, to make art. It's totally antithesis. You, you, you can't, you can't do it. So you have to sort of find other ways, you know, that, that, that was what's so interesting with the Polish artists. They found symbolism or the, the Russian artists found, found ways to subvert the, the, yeah. the from on high. I, I, I mean, you know, without getting too depressed, I, I do think there is great hope because artists, you know, are the ones that will come up with the the good idea and the subversions and the ways to do it. And mm-hmm. there's definitely sort of new movements growing, new connections growing. 
um, I don't feel totally disheartened by this. I, I feel like yeah. it's, it's it, in some ways, maybe it's going to, you know, it's going to birth something completely amazing and new, maybe, yeah. hopefully. Well, it's, it's more tension. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> whether we like it or not. Yes. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you've been through a lot, a lot has happened, but there is a happy ending here. You recently launched a new dance company. So tell us a little bit about that before we, before we round out. Um, yeah. So, so, well, I had a bit of a break after I resigned a couple of weeks, calmed down. And then I actually felt like genuinely this kind of explosion of creativity. There were all these shows that I had wanted to make, but I think I'd been sort of self-censoring for a while. So I reached out and I pulled together an incredible advisory board, uh, that includes people from feminist philosophy, from the military, from the law. From, from dance, from charity, some, some incredible people. And then just sort of started again, really, built, built myself back up again, um, which I have had to do a couple of times in my life. So I just thought, let's just get on it, visit every theatre in the company that, 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 that I'm friends with, talk them through artistic, my artistic ideas. And so, um, yeah, the company's launched and um, we're looking at touring from spring next year. And I have a programme of new works um, I want to make, as well as some new ideas are coming up. I've been travelling, I've been mm. doing talks, and um, it's sort of forming new new alliances, new partnerships. And, you know, it, I think a lot of this year has just been about holding my nerve and sort of staying brave. And my new phrase yeah. is like, fortune favours the brave, like just keep, to keep being brave and um, to continue, really. Sure. And what's the name of the company? Where can we find out more about it? Sure. It's called um, K2Co. So that's K and then two and then Co, C-O. And that's got its, if you just Google K2Co and Rosie K, that'll come up on, on the website. Yeah. Beautiful. And you, you actually have something really interesting, which is everyone uh, explain this to me. I, I, I seem to remember that there is a statement that must be signed, which is a kind of expression of certain values. Yeah. So I, I've, I kind of it's in draft form, but I wanted to go going back to safe spaces. I wanted to try and find a way to make sure that the art that the space to create art is safe in itself. So um I've created something called a charter of creation. And it's really just sort of saying things around this is not a space where you're going to be cancelled or subjected to any rules. You're you're free to speak and to think and we will make mistakes. You know, dance is a place of total joy and, and happiness for me but one needs to look at the heights and the depth of humanity and to be able to talk about these things in order to make the kind of art I want to make and that we come into that space you know with the usual things of respect and everything but also with a with a, with a sense of like freedom freedom of thought freedom of speech and freedom of expression in in the workplace so um mm. I've spoken to a few 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 people that I'd like to work with, and and people are really up for it. It's been really positively received. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. That's a I'm glad. that's a beautiful manifesto. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And it's a it's a yeah. commitment device, right? And and a way for people to affirm uh, their values. So that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm going to last ask you the last question. It's the same question that we ask all our guests. Um. Our focus at FAIR is to provide a pro-human perspective to a lot of the issues that we're facing today. What does pro-human mean to you and how can everyday people embody that? Hmm. Now, I would think that pro-human, one needs to know yourself, one needs to stay connected to yourself, to, to, to who, who you are and the values you stand for. And I think then if you're connected with yourself, it's, it's much easier then to relate with others. I try and always be someone that, that does listen. I, I mean, we all make mistakes. We all have to kind of understand that. I think pro-human is, is somebody that sees, like I said a second ago, both the heights and the depths of humanity. We're not blind to the threats of humanity. We, we are complex, dynamic, tribal creatures. Um, so I would want to be a, a pro-human that's, that's a moderating force, but is also a sort of catalyst of, of, of opening perspectives. I'm not sure that made sense. 
It totally it does. does. It totally it does. does. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for such a, a stimulating conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.